Well, good morning, Wheaton Bible Church. I need more than that. I need a little bit of cafecito. Uh, good morning, Wheaton Bible Church. All right. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Eric Solomon, and I get to serve as our extended Wheaton Bible Church familia as one of the, the preaching pastors on staff. I, I, you may not know me because I am regularly on Sunday mornings in Streamwood at, at Tri-Village Church, our, our campus out in Streamwood, our congregation out there, because I also get the privilege of serving as the campus pastor for that congregation. And, and so I want to bring greetings from that congregation to you. Your brothers and sisters in Christ appreciate you. We, we pray for you. We talk about you because we are one. One big familia. Amen? Amen. I also want to extend a welcome not just to, uh, to those of you who are here in person, but for those of you who are online with us. We are grateful that you are worshiping with us this morning. We can't wait for the day where we can worship together in the same space, but we are grateful for technology that allows us to connect in this particular way. And then one last thing I want to say before we dive in. At, at TVC, we regularly have little ones in the service with us for one reason or another. And so this morning, I just want to say to all the parents in the room with little ones, with, with children, I got you. I got little ones. I know what it's like. Uh, with all the noise, I'm just going to take it as amens to keep going. So I want to encourage you to stay here with us, to worship with us. And little noise communicates that there's life in the room with us. But I also understand if it gets too chaotic, that's okay. You can step out. There's a bunch of family rooms that are around. Uh, but uh, calm the little ones down and come back and be with us. We want to be together as family. Amen? Amen. All right. Well, this morning, we continue our, our celebration of Advent, a, a season where we uh, relive sort of the anticipation of Jesus' first coming. A season where we more faithfully inhabit the hope of Jesus' second coming. This morning, we, we are going to enter that hope by, by meditating on Isaiah 9's next description of the promised Savior, Everlasting Father. Now, I have a question for you. When I just said that, what came to mind when you heard the word Father? Memories? Nightmares? Maybe it's better to ask the question of what came to heart when I said the word Father. You see, very few words in any human language carry the same weight as that word Father. Papi, Appa, Pita, Av, Dad. A word that carries a universe of protection and love and care. Amen. It's also a word that, that trembles under a darkness of pain and apathy and sometimes even abuse. It's a word that finds its only redemption in, in the God who enters that darkness with a universe of loving kindness. This morning, I know that we have members of our familia and even visitors in our gathering who can't even say the word because of, of the memories and the stories that it brings up. This morning, my prayer is that our meditation on the description of Jesus, on this particular description of Jesus, would be one step closer to healing and, and redemption of that word for you. I also recognize that there are, are members of our familia and visitors within our gathering who find deep comfort in the name Father. My prayer is that you would be invited in as we meditate on this description of Jesus that it would be an invitation to be comforted as we re-inhabit the hope of Advent together. 
So I want us to enter into that hope by opening up God's Word together. We're going to be in Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. If you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn there because this morning I want us to read those two verses together as a, a congregational reading. Y'all tracking with me? That means you got to participate, right? You're going to talk to me, all right? So I'm going to ask you to stand uh, for the reading of God's Word. We're in Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. If you're joining us online, I want to encourage you to do the same, to, to stand where you're at. I know it's a little awkward, but we see you through the camera. Come be with us. Um, we're going to read this together, Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. Y'all ready? All right, people of the King, the Word of God speaks to us today from Isaiah 9. Let's read it out loud together. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is God's word. You may be seated. Will you pray with me? King over all of creation, gracious and merciful God, this morning we position ourselves under your word and we ask that you would change us that you would make us more like Jesus as we gather together in this family that you have made. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts here and now would be full of worship and gratitude, conviction and grace and mercy. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said? Amen. Well, I want to start off by telling a joke, but I'll tell you why in a minute. Have you heard the one about the guy who got his mom an expensive parrot for Mother's Day? All right, I'm going to tell you. He paid $10,000 for a parrot that could speak 40 languages and even sing a few hymns. He sent the bird to his mom, but he didn't hear back for a few days. And so he was nervous that she didn't like the bird, and he called his mom and he asked her, all right, mommy, uh, how'd you like the bird? To which she replied, it was great. Filled with pride, the son asked, well, what was your favorite part? There was a pause. And she answered, the thighs, they were delicious. <laughs> now, Pastor John Onuchekwa uses this story in his book on prayer to illustrate a principle that I think we need to pay attention to as we meditate on this particular description of Jesus. The principle is this, wrong interpretation leads to wrong application and potentially disastrous results for parrots in the area. So this morning, I want to give you two tools in your Bible reading toolbox that will help you avoid this application problem. You see, immediately when I started studying this passage, I had a question that you might have as well as we read. How can Jesus, who the Bible explains as the Son of God, be described here as the everlasting Father? Did Isaiah get his like prophetic wires crossed? Am I missing something here? I don't know how many of you have ever read your Bible and thought that same question. Well, what am I missing? Well, this is why I want to give you these two tools, because I want to then use them in our, our, our preaching, our sermon this morning, as, as guardrails so that we don't go off the rails when we try to understand how Jesus can be described as everlasting Father. I want them to be these, these guardrails that keep us on the right track of interpretation so that we, we actually get to the right track of application. And so here are the two tools that I've got for you this morning. Scripture interprets Scripture, 
and context is king. Scripture interprets scripture and context is king. I know this morning is not a class on reading the Bible. I'm not trying to make it into that. But every chance I get, I love kind of pulling the, the, the curtain back on how us preachers got to what we're preaching, the sermon that we're preaching that morning, so that you know that we're not doing some kind of magic trick up here. I, I want you to leave this place and be like, I, I see where you got that from, preacher man. I, I want you even better to leave this place and be like, I, I could have studied that and found that in, in the Word. Because that's all we're doing, studying the Word of God and communicating that Word of God. And so I want to give you these principles for you. The first one, this is going to be quick. Scripture interprets Scripture. This principle basically says that more difficult passages in the Bible have to be read side by side with less difficult passages. Less clear passages need to be read alongside more clear passages. For example, in this particular instance, it's clear from the New Testament that the Son of God and God the Father are distinct. They're different. They're, they're not the same. So we don't ignore what we know from elsewhere in the Bible when we're reading this particular passage. The Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Son. And so there's got to be something else going on here. The second tool is context is king. Not only do we hold on to the guardrail of Scripture interpreting Scripture, we've got to hold on to the other guardrail of context as king. And the context of this passage helps us in two primary ways. First, this is a prophecy we're in, which means you should be expecting images and symbols and descriptive language. Second, this is a prophecy that's given to a particular people at a particular time in a particular place, which means there's particular concerns that, that apply to them. That means that this particular passage is not trying to give you a theological understanding of the entire Trinity. It is not describing the relationship of the members of the Trinity to one another. It's loaded with imagery, and instead, it's trying to communicate something to that particular people in Isaiah's time. And there are other passages that are more clear in their intent to explain the Trinity... But this is not necessarily one of them. So context is king, which means that the description that we have here is more image than title. More like in Genesis 4, when there are two brothers that are described as the, the father who, of those who live in tents and raise livestock, and, and his brother who is described as the father of all who play stringed instruments and pipes. They're, they're not the biological father of all nomads and all musicians, it's more like they're the best at, or the first ones who, or, or even the ones who pass down information. More like that than genealogy. So scripture interprets scripture, context is king. And, and both of these guardrails, the reason I'm, I'm spending even time in this is, is I want them to be up there so that they keep us from jumping off the cliff into heresy. Because there's actually a particular cult that's known as oneness Pentecostals that uses our verse this morning to explain how the son and the father are the exact same person and fall into a Trinitarian heresy we call modalism that denies the Trinity completely. And so I want us to set that, those guardrails up so that we don't follow them over the cliff into heresy. But the guardrails are not just there to protect us from heresy. They are also there to guide us to life-giving truth. You see, the context of this passage makes it clear that, that this is not a description of the Trinity in relationship to other members of the Trinity, but of the promised one in relationship to us. How he will love and lead his people. The one whose rule and reign is better than the dark episodes of the judges that we were talking about just a, a few sermon series before in the book of Ruth. The, the one whose kingdom is better than the roller coaster ride of a divided kingdom between Israel and Judah in the history of God's people. As long as we hold on to the guardrails, these pa this passage will actually bring us not only safely but beautifully to the king who reigns eternally. 
the king who is described here provocatively as everlasting father. My favorite preacher, Charles Spurgeon, once said about this passage, he said, we must not suppose that we shall understand Jesus at a glance. A look will save the soul, but patient meditation alone can fill the mind with the knowledge of the Savior. Translation, it's complicated. But meditation will transform complexity into worship as we sit under God's word humbly and with expectation. And so this morning, in humility and with expectation, with these guardrails in place, I want us to continue our Advent meditation on the promised Savior with another statement about Christmas. If you've been with us, you know that Pastor Hannibal has been giving us these specific statements about Christmas to to help us focus our worship during Advent. The first week was that Christmas is both the most offensive and most wonderful message ever proclaimed. The second week was that Christmas is about the wonderful counselor of truth and of tears. Last week, Christmas is about a, a, a mighty God who came to redeem and redefine the concept of power. Well, this week, I wanted to give you another Christmas statement. Christmas is when eternity entered time and made a new kind of family. Why are we talking about eternity and family? Because this morning we are talking about the everlasting Father. Christmas is when eternity entered time and made a new kind of family. In other words, and these are the the, the points that I want us to focus on, Christmas is about eternity embodied and familia secured. These are two truths I want us to meditate on this morning with the description of everlasting father. Eternity embodied, familia secured. Eternity made temporal, familia created out of enemies and orphans and people who were not God's people becoming God's people. Now to see this, I'm going to be taking you to uh, multiple scriptures. So we're going to be bouncing around uh, because I want to paint a picture of what everlasting father means for us on this side of Christmas. And and to help you keep up, I'm going to show all the passages that that I can on the screen but, but like examining a beautiful piece of art, I'm, I'm going to point out these multiple brushstrokes, but the reason is not so that you focus on these brushstrokes, it's so that you see the beautiful uh, whole of this artwork. So my encouragement to you is that as I do that, write down the references and use that to study in the next couple days as you anticipate Christmas, that it might help you anticipate the Savior. Eternity embodied, familia secured. You ready for this? You ready for this? See, TVC's got me already, so y'all got to learn my little idiosyncrasies. Here we go. In a book about technology, one insightful author illustrated the weight of eternity like this. And I need some audience participation in this as well. So I want you to raise your hand with your palm up to the sky like this. Come on. I can see you. (laughs) Now I want you to look to your right and imagine eternity stretching out all the way out that direction. Go ahead. Look to your right. Now look to your left and imagine a line extending out in eternity all the way to that direction. Now look back at your hand. The width of your hand is give or take the amount of time we're going to spend on this earth. Let that sink in for a moment. Think about how brief life is, how mortal we are. No matter how much technology we invent or diets we recommit to, or workouts we get creative with, I'm looking at you, CrossFitters. (laughs) We are time-bound creatures, not by choice, but by design. We had a beginning, and without the sustaining hand of God, we will all have an end. 
This affects every human that is except for one. You see, the book of Isaiah is filled with the language of eternity. He, he loves when he's writing to paint time with the interruptions of the one who sits outside of time, the, the eternal one. So when Isaiah here talks about one who is coming and describes him as the everlasting father, he is decisively placing this promised savior in a category belonging to God and God alone. In other words, he is describing this promised savior as divine. But not just as divine, right? Because we've already got another description that helps us in that direction. He already described this promised one as mighty God. But, but Isaiah here is, is specifically attaching a very particular aspect of divinity to this promised one. A particular aspect of, of what it means to be God. Eternal existence. The promised one is not just another king that is promised. Not just another David. The, the promised one is not, not just another wise man, another Solomon. He, he's not just a, a, another human who, who saves for a season like any of the judges we've read about. No, he is everlasting. He, he lasts forever. He comes and he saves and, and he rules and he reigns and there is no end in sight to his kingdom. The New Testament picks up and clarifies this idea in Hebrews 13, 8, where we read this. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That verse is not just listed in the context of Hebrew like some kind of um, God-Savior job description. In Hebrews, the eternal nature of our Savior is used as an encouragement to his people to endure, to, to persevere, to follow him, to trust him, to know that his salvation is not just temporary, that it's not just for this particular season in their lives, that it's not just a band-aid that he came to apply. What he introduced into the world as incarnation by his life, what he accomplishes on the cross through his death and his resurrection, that's just the beginning of his kingdom. Unlike every other kingdom in the world, the kingdom of Jesus has no expiration date. He's everlasting. We read in Revelation 1, 8, this out of the mouth of the Lord God, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Alpha is the, the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last. And like saying A to Z, God is saying time cannot contain me. Time exists in him. It cannot hold him. He is the one who exists, has always exi existed, and will always exist. He exists endlessly, always. Like a child's coloring pages, God does not stay within the lines, the, the, the timeline of history. This is the Jesus that Hebrews encourages us with. The, the Jesus that Isaiah promises to us. The one who came to earth but who has no beginning. Because he never began. He always was. And yet, in what can only be described as a miracle, the one who time cannot contain not only entered time but took on a body. A time-bound, breaking down, able to die body, eternity embodied. The everlasting one became temporary so that the temporary could be redeemed forever, so that by his death we could have life, eternal life, everlasting life in his everlasting kingdom. Christmas is when eternity entered time.
I'm going to draw this out a little bit further for you. Because the fact that the promised Savior, the coming King, is the everlasting one, is good news not just because it means that someone without end is coming, but that the God without end is coming. If it was someone that was just without end, the news might not be so good. After all, what are they like? Who are they? Right? There are countries all over the world that feel stuck in a government that, that feels like it has no end, ruled by a tyrant, a person whose rule ends only because of their mortality. If the coming one is not good, then the news of an everlasting father does not sound very good. But that's not who is promised to us. The promised one is not just an eternal king. He is described as an everlasting father. And that's why eternity embodied is good news. Because it speaks of familia secured. Christmas is not just when eternity entered time, but when God began to make a new kind of family. When God began to secure a brand new family for himself. Because the promised one is not just everlasting, he is everlasting father. He will love us and relate to us and save us, not just as the father of eternity, but like a father forever. This is where things start to get tricky, right? So I want you to remember our guardrails. Scripture interprets Scripture in context is king. The son is not the father. The father is not the son. Jesus being described as a father is a, not a comparison within the Trinity, but a description of his relationship, how he relates to us like a father. All right, so I want you to keep your hands on the rails, and I want to show you something. In the Gospel of John, we get this very interesting exchange between Jesus and one of his disciples, Philip. I'll put it up on the screen for you. John 14, 8 through 10 goes like this. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us, which is a perfectly reasonable request. You see, near the end of Jesus' life, after he's explained to his disciples that he's about to die, Jesus' disciples are, are, are worried and they want some reassurance that they have not thrown their lives away over a temporary re revolutionary. Show us the Father. Show us God and, and we'll be able to hold on. What is surprising about this text is how Jesus answers him. Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? Philip's question is shocking to Jesus, not because Philip is looking for encouragement, but because encouragement is standing right in front of him. Anyone who wants to see the Father need only to look to Jesus. Not because Jesus is the Father, but because he perfectly reveals the Father to us. You see, way back in the, the first chapter of the Gospel of John, there's this one little verse near the end where it says this, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. That truth has been playing out day in and day out right before the eyes of Jesus' disciples. He has been showing them the Father his whole life. He is God in the flesh, the invisible God made visible. Pastor Dane Ortland describes this in his book, Gentle and Lowly, like this. He, Heaven's eternal heart was walking around on two legs in time and space. What kind of heart is that? The heart of a father. The Father who, who makes us into family, who adopted us as his children, made us siblings with one another. 
There's a, a, a phrase that I often use at TVC, and if I'm honest, I sort of stole it from our senior pastor because he says this all the time um, to our staff. This is family. It's the kind of phrase you say when someone you love tries to give you an out. Oh, you know, thank you so much. You don't have to do that. You didn't have to get that gift. Or, or you know what? I know your plate's already full. Like, don't worry about it. No, this is family. It's the kind of phrase that you respond with when people who are newer followers of Jesus have a hard time understanding why, why people that they barely know but who love Jesus like they love Jesus would want to love and serve them by, by cleaning up their backyard or, or, or bringing them dinner or, or sitting with them when they lose someone they love. This is family. This is what family does. And this is what Jesus has done for us. He, he has made a new kind of family that is determined not by a shared bloodline, but by the shared blood of Christ. A, a familia that is secured not by our own good works or genetically transmitted similarities, but by the work of the one who reveals the heart of the Father to us. The heart of an enduring and compassionate protector. A, a protector who for all time is, is not only mighty God, but is also wonderful counselor who not only has the power to protect, but knows how to enter into pain with the right combination of truth and tears. A supernatural God. A Father. Now, in the uh, Solomon household these days, we are in a, a new childhood development stage that I like to call the, the try to figure out how to fit into a queen-size bed with a child between you phase. <laughs> and for all of the, the donkey kicks in the back, or the sleeping sideways on the top of the pillow... Every single time my daughter runs into the room because she had a nightmare, she knows that my wife and I will look at her and will say, of course, little one, you can jump into bed with us. Because here in this bed, there are no nightmares. There are no monsters under this bed. There are no scary shadows on the wall. Here you are protected by a mom and a dad who love you very much. My brother and my sister, this morning... Jesus is the embodiment of the everlasting arms of the everlasting Father that will protect you no matter what nightmare life throws at you. He is the God that does not pretend that evil does not exist, but knows how to be with you in it because he is the one who is ending it. The encouragement of Advent is that this everlasting Father protects, but he also provides you see, in Isaiah, we talk about this everlasting kingdom that's ruled with everlasting power. But it's not just that. It's also ruled by an everlasting Father who knows what we need before we even ask, who is tender and caring and willingly gives not just good gifts, but His very life for us because He loves us. This is the heart of the Father reflected in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ the one who protects, the one who provides, and, and the one who does all of it, not just as some faraway God who sends his love to us, like, like, like hey, I'm sending you good vibes, or, or I, I'm just praying for you through a text message. He does all of this as the personal God who is Emmanuel, God with us. Theologian John Owen in an effort to explain this personal nature of God, asks his readers to, to picture anything in all of creation with a loving and tender nature. And then picture that with all of its imperfections taken away. 
And there you have a picture of the love of the Father. He does not leave you alone. He will never disappoint. He will never provoke you to anger. He is everything you ever imagined the Father could be, everything you've ever desired from your earthly father, all of the care, the protection, the provision, the relationship that that all earthly fathers try to embody is perfectly embodied in the love of Jesus for you. The invisible God made visible in the incarnation. Now, Isaiah doesn't specify just how this promised one will be the everlasting father to us. He he kind of only hints at it. But when we track the story of the gospel, we find that Jesus reveals to God, God to us not only by his life, but especially by his death and resurrection. How he protects, provides, and is personally involved with us in our desperate situation because it is by his death and resurrection that he secures protection for us from sin and from death. It is by his death and resurrection that he, he provides eternal life for all of us who believe. It is by his death and resurrection that he shows that he does all of this, not as someone who is far away, but as the God-man actually dying in our place. Do you, do you understand how incredible that is? Let me say it another way. The one who is so full of life that he only needs to speak life in, for, for life to come into existence, who, who cannot be contained by time and space, not only took a body, but but actually experienced death. He did all of that for you, for me, for, for, for us, that all who believe would be saved from the destruction of sin and death that was our righteous punishment for our sin. And then here's what's even more nuts about that. Death couldn't even hold him. Three days later, he gave death its final and fatal blow, and the grave had to release the Lord of life. Do you realize that in this world, death is on its last legs? Because the one who in the very last chapter of the Bible declares victory said this, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. This is the one whose first coming we celebrate at Christmas. Not just because he came, but because of why he came, to save us. Eternity took on a body in order to secure a family for us. Christmas is when eternity entered time and made a new kind of family. When the one who is the beginning and the end entered the middle to change our end for his glory and our good. And then in Revelation 22, we hear the voice of Christmas calling to us. The hope of Advent that invites us like this, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. Come, says the God who gave everything to save us. Not get cleaned up and then you can come. Not, you know what, you got to figure your life out and then we, we would love to have you. Not make sure you have the right clothes or, or, or know the right songs or have a big enough bank account, not make your family and your house and your life look picture perfect, not be sure to have your kids enrolled in the right kind of school or education or make sure you have the right job or even get rid of all of your sin. None of that. He says, come. If you're thirsty, come. If you want the free gift, come. Everything else is a conversation we can have later. Listen to me, your your life as a child, 
as his child. In his everlasting arms, your relationship with this father is not determined by what you have done or not done, by how you have lived or not lived, by, by, by what you have said or not said. It is decided by what he has done on the cross, dying in our place for our sins. It is determined by how he lived in perfect righteousness and obedience to the law of God. And best of all, most of all, it is dictated by what he has said. A word not of condemnation, but of salvation. Come, you who need the free gift of eternal life. You who are thirsty, come and drink. This morning as we meditate on Isaiah's description of the promised Savior, a description that paints him with eternity and the tender care of a father, do you hear the voice of the one who loves you calling to you? to come. Maybe those, there are those of you who are here who, who are not here because you follow Jesus, but because uh, someone else invited you. Or, or maybe you're here because you pulled into the parking lot and you're like, hey, it's Christmas. I haven't been to church in a while. I, I feel like I got to go. Or, or maybe you're here because you used to follow Jesus and, and now you're not following Jesus. You're following other saviors for whatever reason. And, and you just said, hey, this, I think I need to be there right now. Do you hear the voice of the one who loves you? calling you to come, to come back, to trust in his love for you, to be convinced of his care for you, to believe that what he did on the cross counts for you, to trust that this is just the beginning of God's work and making you whole again, making this whole world whole again. Maybe that's not how you walked in. Maybe you walked in this morning following Jesus, but shaken by whatever you've experienced in the world, in this broken world, wounded by the fathers uh, who, who should have reflected the love of the everlasting father, but instead looked a lot more like the father of lies. This morning, the everlasting father who saved you calls you to come and drink again of the waters of life. No matter what this broken world throws at you, the walking, talking heart of heaven is not only present, but working all things together for your good and his glory in your life. The pain he endured, the suffering he willingly entered into, they all testify to the heart of a father who will go to the ends of the earth, the depths of the grave, will move heaven and earth to get to you because he loves you. This Christmas, would you step further into his healing arms? Maybe there are those of you who walked in and day in and day out, you are expressing the love of the everlasting Father to everybody that comes into your path. From the little ones in your home to the children that run these halls and call this church home. And, and maybe even to the adults who need to be reminded of the love of a father by being pointed to a supernatural God. But you're tired. You're exhausted. You're weary. This morning, the hope of Advent calls to you. It says, come and rest. Rest because you are not the one who needs to fix the world. I've already started that project. And I will finish what I start. This Christmas, he calls to you to be with him. For all of you that I've named and even those that I haven't. To hold on to the hope of Christmas. Because, because Christmas is when eternity entered time and began to secure a family for God, made us into a new family. 
And in this season of Advent, we get to inhabit that hope as we wait for Jesus to come back and to make everything right again. And so I want to invite you, as we end this morning, as I, as I pray, that we might inhabit that hope together by praying together. That you might remember what Jesus did, not just at Christmas, not just at Easter, but what he's doing now and today, calling you to come and drink of the waters of life. Would you pray with me? Eternal God, loving Father, compassionate Savior, this morning we, we cry out the words of 1 Corinthians 16, 22. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We want you to return and to make everything right again. We want you to fix the brokenness of this world, to, to repair the brokenness of our hearts and our homes and our relationships. Our hope is desperate, Lord, but, what it, but it is also real because what you have done because you did the unimaginable and you became human. It is because of your first coming that we hope in your second coming. And so we thank you and we pray, come quickly, Jesus. And then we hear your word respond to us in Revelation 22. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen.